Hello and welcome to episode number 152 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, October 20th, 2014. In the previous episode of the podcast, I mentioned that I would be taking a break for a couple of weeks as I journeyed to the city of New York. And I have since been to New York City and come back. And turns out that I only actually needed one week uh, break. So I had a really excellent time in the Big Apple, as you can imagine. And if you want to check out some photos from that, uh, you can check my Twitter feed, which is twitter.com slash agroinnovations or at agroinnovations. Now, this episode of the podcast is a fantastic interview with permaculturalist and regrarian Darren Doherty, who is a repeat guest, and we will get to that here in a moment. But before we do so, I would like to thank the generous sponsors of this episode of the podcast, Scott O., Patrick L., and Eric R., clicked on the PayPal donate button on the right-hand side of the agroinnovations.com website and sent some money my way. And that is much appreciated. It was a pretty good week or couple of weeks for the podcast. And if you would like to follow their lead, please do so by clicking on that PayPal donate button. And I would also like to thank Robert F., uh, Robert donated to the podcast a while back, and I had not realized it, but there was a small problem with my PayPal account, which I rectified, but by that time, Robert's donation had been canceled, but he uh, very generously sent that donation back. And so, Robert, thank you very much for doing so and for your generous donation. Now enjoy my interview with Darren Doherty. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined once again by another repeat guest, Darren Doherty, who is currently on a world tour with his Regrarians Enterprise or his Regrarians team. Darren Doherty, welcome back to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. Um, it's always great to talk to you, mate. Well, tell us a little bit about your tour that you're doing right now. Uh, well, I think we're four months into it. We left um, in the middle of June um, and started off in Europe. And the the tour was uh, to as a, it was kind of like a pre-tour. Um, we've got a book coming out next year, and we've also got a movie coming out, Polyfaces, and uh, which is about the Polyface farm fa- family community and all of their livestock enterprises. And that's going to be released early next year. So we wanted to do a sort of a pre-promotion of that and finish the filming. But then we've also had all these requests to do um, open consultancies, which is a, a workshop framework that we do where we do a, a, a real live consultancy on a person's farm or property and um, invite people to come along and, uh, and witness and participate in that. So we just got a lot of invita- invitations, so that filled up a schedule that's um, now running for six months. So... So we won't be home until um, until uh, early December now. So yeah, so it's great. 
So you are traveling around the world and seeing a lot of different things that are happening in a lot of different countries. Mm-hmm. And you get to travel to a lot of farms, as you said, and ranches. Yeah. What are you seeing out there on the landscape and with the people who are in in these situations? Um, seeing, seeing a lot of the similar stuff. Um, a lot of the people that are coming to us, um, well, the typical profile is someone who is in a startup mode or is in a reboot mode. So the startup modes are people who are buying property as an investment or as a change of lifestyle um, and reasonable size properties and they want to know how to do it properly. Um, and then we've got, um, so that they've brought us in to help them with that, how to lay out the property, etc. Um, then we've got other folks who are, um, have been in agriculture for a long time and they want to reboot. So they're, they're saying, all right, well, we've got to this point. We need to do something different to make it better so we can stay um, and in both cases, the land's, land is generally in a degraded condition. Um, you know, rhizospheres are, are really short, water cycles are shot, mineral cycles are shot, um, the personal economy of the, of the people involved is shaky and vulnerable. Um, and in places like California and the southwest, uh, where there's pretty strong drought at the moment, uh, People are very concerned about water. But water seems to be a concern of everyone, and, um, but so too is the economy of people's farms and, and um, how their quality of life is being compromised ostensibly. Well, here we go. I mean, you jumped right into kind of where I wanted to steer us without any prompting um, on my own part. So it seems like um, a lot of people are facing... Uh, crises on multiple levels, and uh, is it safe to say some people are not sure what to do a- about it, or are kind of wringing their hands? What what is uh, people's morale? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think the morale overall. I mean, look, look. I think the people who are inviting us to come and do our workshops, and we do. We've I think we've done something like twelve or so this year. Um, I, I don't quote me on that, but around that. Um, their morale is all actually pretty positive. Uh, they're thinking, well, look, you know, it seems clear that there's a pathway. Um, there's enough evidence from what other people are doing out there in the re- regenerative agricultural space that things seem possible. It's just that they don't necessarily know how to pull that together. So that's, that's I suppose, what we're helping to do. Um, then we look at the attendees. Um, look, we're hearing... That the the main stories that we're hearing are from people that the sort of the down stories, if you like, are from people who are in who are stuck stuck, if you like, or who are involved in 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 uh, livestock commodities or are, are produce who are commodity producers, as opposed to those who are in uh, more localized trading systems uh, where they're price setters, so. The people who are involved in commodities um, production, I mean, they're you know they're 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 really stuck in a place. Um, most of those people have been livestock producers, so if any of them are um, buying any cereals at the moment, well, with the high price of cereals, that's a problem for them. Um, so there's always that gripe. 
Um, and then that's compromised also by the lack of rainfall that especially people in California have been having. Um, the people who, uh, who are already selling their goods um, directly to their market, their main gripe is um, regulators and regulations um, stifling their capacity to have free access to markets or freer access to markets. And also to just handling growing pains um, because there's so many people out there who want their product. So how am I going to, how are they going to be able to again uh, manage to have a quality of life without that being compromised by um, having too much demand placed upon them? Which says to me, there's plenty of space for others to get in there and start selling directly. So it's a good, it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem that people have highlighted. Well, you said that the land is eroded and people's morale is positive, but are people aware of the degraded state that the landscape is in? Um, I would have to say broadly not um, because people people aren't looking at um, – how would you say? People aren't looking the, – the lens through peop, which people monitor their landscapes is not really strong at the moment, I would say. Um, I don't know that it ever has really been that strong. Um, but a lot of people actually need to be shown – what a functional landscape, or or how to how to actually monitor their landscape functioning. Um, that's that's something that people have, and then they go, oh, okay, I thought I was doing okay, and then I, you know, and so on it goes. So there's still a bit of that sort of um, monitoring literacy that needs to be developed. That seems to be the case. Well, I've been on a number of farms and ranches myself, particularly in North America and somewhat in South America. And certainly in North America, I can say that soil compaction is a huge problem. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Soil compaction is a massive issue. And I mean, it's, we were just talking about this today in the field at this property. I mean, it's, a 40, it's got 40-inch rainfall. It's got... It's got you know, exquisite soils, which are, you know, there seems to be no depth to. Um, and yet the rhizosphere depth is only about six inches where, you know, you, you basically have no excuse but to have a rhizosphere that's going metres of depth. But because of the way people have managed it, um, the rhizosphere is short and so therefore there's not the, not the rhizos, there's there's not the... Um, the decompacting forces that uh, that occur when you have uh, an active root system um, keeping the compaction at bay. So, so you know this whole overgrazing or uh, where people are uh, uh, constantly cropping um, annual crops is 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 a real is is the cause of as of compaction. It's not just wheeled equipment. It's actually the lack of rhizosphere and a perennial rhizosphere that's the real problem. And, um, and then when you do have that perennial base that people are overgrazing and, uh, and, uh, and not covering their soils, we've seen quite a lot of perennial pastures uh, like we were down in Oklahoma last week and um, beautiful, you know, little, and, uh, little blue stem and big blue stem based pastoral systems but, um, but no but no surface cover. And so that was, you know, compromising um, the systems there. And that was on sand, so compaction wasn't so much of an issue, but uh, soil surface cover was. So, 
But um, yeah, it still goes on. Compaction is such a uh, globally important issue. And yet not talked about very often. No. Well, I, I gave a talk at Oregon State University last night and um, I said, you know, the if you if I, I challenged people to do a Google image search on um, on trophic levels on the trophic uh, on the energy levels or uh, trophic pyramid and find one trophic pyramid that actually had the soil included as a level soil microbiology or biology I keep looking and I can't find any and Elaine Ingham was in the audience and she, you know we talked she was nodding away going no. <laughs> There's nothing. It's so you know. It's hardly surprising that it's not talked about because it isn't even on the radar of biologists, let alone let alone ecologists. That this you know the the greatest wealth on our lithosphere of biology is in the soil that we stand and work upon, and so it's hardly surprising that we're not talking about issues like compaction much. And certainly, I think it's much more important. A discussion than um, say uh, say the relevance of carbon pricing or whatever. I think we really need to look at having a price on soil. It's got to that point. Well, one of the things you said early on in the conversation is that many of the people who you're engaging with are on some shaky economic ground. Say more about mm. that. Um, well, especially the people who are involved in commodity exchange, they are. Um, because they don't have any power over over controlling their price, and and when you don't have any power to control your price, it's really difficult to, especially if you're in a medium sized landscape where you can't prov- where you can't get to an economy of scale that you can you can sort of jump above the hoop a bit. Um, you know, there's there's sort of sweet spots in the, in the agricultural economy, in agricultural landscapes of production levels that allow you to sort of negate being involved in commodity-based production. And if you're just a bit below that or right on the edge of that, then that's a pretty precarious place. That's not to say that people who are bigger are, are better off necessarily, but they can just hedge it a bit because of the economy of scale. And um, so when you... When you um, don't have the ability to, um, you know, have a, have a regulated income where you can predict income, then it's difficult to financially plan for that when you're still, you know, when your fixed costs of operation is, remain the same. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one for people. So, but that's been a problem for people for a long time. I don't see that as being anything new, but... Uh, it's it's getting increasingly difficult as energy prices increase, and uh, and production levels decrease, and you know phosphorus that we've reached peak phosphorus and all of the rest of it. So it's it's which is applying pressure on people when when it comes to their terms of trade. Although energy prices have been relatively stable over the past five years. Yeah, they have, but. Other other energy related costs haven't. Um, when you look at um, nitrogen prices and you look at phosphorus prices, etc., which have other influences on them. I mean, you know, we just look at the influence of of what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment over over European liquid natural gas or uh, prices, and therefore nitrogen prices, which you know. So 
there's different push factors on the energy on in from the energy sector, which is not just about the the, the relatively stable um, oil price that we've been witnessing for some time. Well, last time we spoke, you said that you found the lack of engagement from the permaculture community and from permaculture designers with the agricultural industry to be disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that we're talking about commodity agriculture and you're working with some commodity agriculture producers. It seems like a lot of people, when they get started with permaculture, is often, you know, when people are in the startup phase, they need to acquire some land and build a CSA or some type of clientele base yeah. and kind of, you know, build up this enterprise as they go. Yet, we have all these commodity agriculture producers around the United States and around much Elsewhere. of the world who are, in some ways, low-hanging fruit for permaculture. I mean, it's, of course, yeah, no, I agree. It, I agree. It's, it's industrial agriculture, but we can push them along towards a transition. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've been really pushing um, probably since the last time we talked, which was, what, two years ago or so, um, is... Oh, is it is it about that long? No, it's been um, it's been for almost four or five years. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> um, well, one, what we've been really pushing over probably the last two years um, is it sort of came from a realization of Lisa and I, mine, my wife Lisa Heenan and myself, that we can spend the rest of our lives trying to work with changing people in agriculture. Um, and, you know, to diffuse that innovation as per Everett Rogers' thesis um, with pretty rusted-on um, belief systems of a lot of agricultural, uh, you know, commodity-based agricultural producers is, you know, we could spend the rest of our lives and we'll only influence so many people. And it sort of came to the point where we thought, well, you know, what is actually going to drive change in agriculture? And for us, well, for some people, like having talked to Alan Savory recently, and uh, you know, he's been pushing the policy barrow, and I get that, and I agree with him, that policy has a really big place to play. But what drives policy? Um, the market drives policy. And, you know, obviously industry runs, makes policy as well or influences it, but really it's the market. So we've been trying to suggest to people in agriculture and also consumers that they will be the ones who will broker change in agriculture because agriculture is ultimately in the business of supplying a product to, to customer demand. And if consumers out there create a demand for a particular way of engaging um, in uh, securing their food, fibre and energy crops, then the market will will direct its energy towards that and accordingly so will policy. So if we can – so we, we've been spending a lot more energy, if you like, um, at, at our coal face um, having that discussion, which seems to have some resonance and it certainly has some res- – uh, because at every course or every free evening talk that we do, which we do every time we go to a new place, we do a free public talk, which is typically – 50 or 60% consumers, there seems to be a high level of resonance 
with those people, the consumers, around the power that they actually wield in all of this. And, you know, if I, if I quote your current president, you know, show me a movement and I'll move. And, you know, that's, that's political science 101, that uh, when one sees a, uh, a movement, therefore a market move in a particular direction, then, um, then producers, whether it's producers of Apple products or whether you know, Apple computing or whether it's producers of foodstuffs, they will change in the way that in not only the way those foods are produced but also in the way that they're, that they're delivered to a consumer. So um, we've been having a lot of that conversation because we see that for agriculture to change, it's actually got to come predominantly from the consumer. But that change requires a workforce that is ready, willing, and able to provide Absol- what the consumer absolutely. wants. Absolutely. I agree. And that's, that's a real weak link as we've identified that um, consumer trends and behaviors in purchasing patterns can move much quicker than the potential ad- adaptability of the, uh, of the uh, professional producers that you, the aforementioned professional producers who are already out there producing commodities, for them to immediately change over production systems from being corn and soya beans over into being a uh, more diverse producer, I think they're well equipped to do so because they're at least already aware of the phenology of and patterns and cycles of agriculture, but they've got to actually they've got to actually change crops and um, planting systems and uh, a whole lot of other stuff. So there is still involved a lot of change. And that's, that, I think, is a challenge that's got to be met by the likes of myself and other advisors out there and also the land-grant universities and whatnot who, are, who, are, who have to direct some of their energies, and they will when policy allows that and when a change in, uh, in market direction will change that i think but at the moment but it's, not, it's, but it's not immediate yeah i mean at the moment we see almost no evidence or that of that or you know very very scarce evidence maybe people who are in urban areas who are in cooperative extension who are you know pushed towards this direction but certainly in rural america n- not so much no um well oregon state who we spoke at la uh, oregon state university they they have an extension service now which is which is helping and look you're right i mean for the land grant universities, there's bits and pieces, but it's not. I mean, the land grant universities, their agriculture departments, they're pitching their work towards the towards the ninety percent, and that's because that's where it's it. I mean, that's where the action is. They're not going to go and um, and lead lead a movement towards regenerative agriculture when um, well when their funding doesn't come from that direction and where they don't have a captive market. So it, they're, they're, um, it's, it's a very interesting space to be in in a transition. And, but I, I mean, I, I have a lot of faith in the capacity of people to gear up. We do have, I think, um, I won't say enough, but we do have a pretty substantial base of very high-quality producers in the United States and elsewhere, um, and those who, who's, who, whose models, cropping models or marketing models, etc., 
that that advisors could go and uh, cherry pick from to to help in a transition. It's not going to be an easy one, and it's not one based on any single model. But at the very least, we do have some people out there who've got runs on the board and um, and uh, who are worthy of uh, of um, getting information and techniques from. So I had um, a conversation with David Holmgren, who was previously featured on the Agro Innovations podcast just recently. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he and I got into some detail discussing was the system of land tenure, especially mm-hmm. – and the cultural context of land tenure, mm-hmm. especially in the um, Anglo-American society. Mm-hmm. And – you know, I think David is in the camp of, and, and I am as well, the tenure system is really holding us back in that we have a lot of, as I like to call them, lone rangers out there who are trying to make permaculture work and yet have no real economy of scale that they can uh, implement on their farm or ranch. Now, if w- what is the pathway to detaching the way that we produce food from the land tenure system so that we can get, I mean, we do have a qualified workforce of people in the permaculture community, I think, who can take this mm. on, but they don't have access to land in the way that they would like. Mm, I, I would dispute that somewhat because, uh, and I, I, I know that might be a bit controversial, I think that there are some people within the, the permaculture movement who would have the capacity to scale up but um, that, but the majority of them would need to go through a significant amount of uh, vocational training with with people who've got who've got um, runs on the board. Um, so I th- I think that there's and and I also would su- suggest that a lot of people within the permaculture movement are, are great at um, at dealing with what they call zone one and two systems. But when it comes to broader scale systems and um, then those sorts of systems take a whole range of different expertise, particularly when it comes to livestock and, and cropping systems, there's not a lot of familiarity there as, as I witness it within the permaculture movement. Um, so um, I think within the organic agriculture movement and within agri- organic uh, or within agriculture itself, I've, from what I've witnessed, I would find it a lot easier to transition a young person who has that background into zone three, four, broad scale agricultural regenerative agricultural management than I would um, taking someone who grew up in the suburbs and. Um, and and I had to take them from there, I, I, and because we've seen this, and uh, and people like Joel Salatin, are, with his internship program, are pretty well, um, pretty well. Uh, uh, they've they've addressed that that pretty well with their internship program. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough one. I mean, there's no easy answers for this. I would say also on the land tenure system is that um, what's emerging also, and I don't know if David spoke about this. It's the same in Australia. Is what we're getting is um, the sort of reverse outcome of what countries like the US were settled for. Um, why people escaped Europe was from the tyranny of feudalism, and what we're moving back into 
is uh, neo-baronial feudalism where a lot of landscapes, because their, um, their land, the real estate value is way in excess of the productive value, um, like on this landscape we're on today, um, uh, land leasing rates are $100 a, an acre but the land is worth $10,000 an acre to buy. I mean, that's a 1% return. I mean, you know, just <laughs> that's, that's uh, well, it's about what you get for putting money in the bank in the US at the moment. But, you know, it's not, it's not going to give people any, uh, any you, know, you, just, you, you just cannot get a return on investment if you're going out and buying um, land for 10000 bucks an acre. Um, it's, so to buy a, to buy a, Sort of a almost viable block of land. You've got to spend millions, and uh, that's that's a hard walk up prospect. So we do have a neo tenancy um, process in front of us, and I don't think that's that's ridiculous because people have share farmed and tenant farmed for forever. But um, where people for people to, to part of the motivation of American and Australian society as landholders has been around owning your own piece of land. And take that away, and um, and uh, people are well. I won't say less willing to invest, but they are. But does I mean isn't this? I I view this as somewhat of a failure of imagination. I mean, we think of permaculture, and we think of someone either on a broad scale or you know on a more gardening type scale creating a little sustainable environment for themselves and their families. And I think mm. what I was getting at with my question with David and then here with you too is, you know, there's no sense of solidarity or collective action. And that's one of the reasons why I featured yeah. on, you know, several previous recent episodes, this notion of worker cooperatives, things that have been going yeah. on in Spain with Mondragon and yeah. in the United States with smaller agricultural producer cooperatives. Um, it, it makes no sense that one person or a family could manage 40,000 acres effectively. And, and when they do, they often manage it, as you said, in a degraded state or in a state that's well below its productive capacity. Yeah, no, that's true. And I suppose when, you, when you're managing landscapes that scale anyway, I mean, they're rangelands and uh, they're rangelands for a reason because they're distant from populations and they're always going to be stuck in a commodity exchange of goods and services. Um, look, I, yeah, I agree with you completely, Frank. I think um, there, there is a bit of a lack of imagination, but then there's um, and and there is a lack of of cooperation. Uh, one of my um, colleagues and clients, Jerry Carroll, has come up with a a program called um, uh, Collaborative Agricultural, or what he calls it, the need for the collaborative agricultural economy, um, where where we, I won't say it's sort of revisionist, but it is in somewhat a revisionist uh, means of going back to smaller, more human-scale landscapes. I mean, I was flying over, um, where was it? I, was, I, was, I flew from Missouri to Chicago a couple of days ago and I was looking down over the landscape and I was looking at these properties, these row crop properties. And on one section, there were six Six prop, six uh, houses, six individual silos on on. So there was a sixth of a section each family. Now that meant you know, forty or fifty years ago, you know, prior to Earl Butts, 
sort of changing the world, making chicken available to everybody, um, that uh, those people, there was, there was six families, probably of four or five kids each, who, who lived on a sixth of a section, right, or a quarter of a section. And they were able to make a living and send their kids to school and, and most of them were collaborating heavily because, because the machinery age hadn't, you know, hydraulics hadn't caught up. We were still, you know, there weren't efficient bailing systems. You know, all of these things that we somewhat take for granted now actually involved a lot of human hands to manage. And so there was some kind of a collaborative agricultural economy back then. Um, and that's part of what I see is, and you know, people like Jerry as well, um, see is what we need to get back to, but do it not in a um, not do it in a commodity based uh, framework as a first choice, but doing it in a localized uh, marketing frame framework as a first choice. That would be the major change that I would be looking at. So, but shouldn't people like you and myself and others uh, with diverse skill sets be able to team up and, you know, regardless of whether we own the land or not, I mean, it, sure. it almost seems yeah. irrelevant. We can rehabilitate it. We can get it to produce. We can generate uh, wages and income for ourselves and, you know, get this thing rolling. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but I'll just get back to the primary motivations of a lot of people in Western democracies is that there's still this desire this post-feudal desire to actually own your own piece of land and uh and you're only going to go generally and i'm generalizing generally people are only going to go so far with the capital expenditure that they put into a property in the development of someone else's resources which they know at any time once the uh once the lease agreement is up that that they can that they could be kicked off so there is a bit of that, but I, I, at the same time, there's other people out there who are more than happy to uh, to have to go and do those sorts of things on properties. Although, isn't there some room to develop maybe some new systems or innovative ways of doing things? Maybe using some of the technologies at our disposal. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just throwing yeah. this out there yeah, to, there to maybe and, make it know, a little I'm, lighter. I'm, I'm inspired. I talk about people like uh, Ford Hall Farm in the UK. Um, uh, Arthur Hollands wrote one of my favourite books. It's called The Farmer, the Plough and the Devil. And uh, he toured the US um, years ago. He's been dead for some time. But, um, you know, that he had a farm and he was a, he was a tenant farmer, a generational tenant farmer. So his father was a tenant farmer and I think his father before that in the UK. I mean, 75% of the UK's farming land is owned by 5% of the population. So it's... And I've got clients who are feudal landlords, you know, lords actually have titles. They sit in the House of Lords. And so it, it's there and it's pervasive. So it's already culturally there. Now, Arthur Hollands died and as I understand it, his younger two children um, were to take over the tenancy and the lord decided to sell the joint, as I understand it. And because he had a direct marketed model, well, direct marketing model, um, they had thousands of customers and the thousands of customers were upset at the prospect of losing their food supply. 
So what they did was a few bright minds in there. What they did was they decided to get together and actually buy the farm. And I think that farm has something like two to 5,000 owners. So it's the I, I see that sort of innovation as being a really positive one because one of the issues well, – and so – those that, that those young Holland's children who I think are now in their thirties, um, they have it written into their tenancy agreement with their five thousand landlords that they can continue to have a dynastic link to that landscape, which they have for multiple generations now, provided that they follow the guidelines that their father set out as product as a production system. Now I see that sort of model as being the kind of innovation that's, that's, that, uh, that we may need to get towards. So in order for um, people to feel secure in landscapes and to feel like they can invest um, the profit that they generate from landscapes back into them. Well, that's an instructive story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, it's Ford Hall Farm, F-O-R-D. H A L. You can have a look, and you can even download all of their tru- uh, their trust agreements and everything. It's a great story, and it's one of a few where you actually have to have an innovative um, corporate profile to manage some of these um, challenges that we have in a post feudal and post communist society too. I mean, you know, remember we've been through all of that. People have tried to collectivize, and I think that models like that one I just quoted are are actually good ones that are post both of those um, systems. They, they kind of give you a bit of both in a way, and the, but the positive pieces of both. So what are your thoughts on or do you have any experience with uh, worker-owned cooperatives applying permaculture uh, to a landscape? Um, I don't have any direct experience, no. Um, I mean, I've... I've I've heard about and listened to Bill Mollison talk about the Mondragon system. I've not been to the Basque land and um, and actually seen these. I've seen a lot of people talk about them, but they seem to be probably the most idyllic ones that people talk about. But then there's a sophisticated level of cultural uh, – there's, there's, there's another layer of culture and, and religious culture that's that underpins that, as I understand, in, in the Basque lands. But um, – Otherwise, you know, you do see little bits and pieces of uh, industrial democracy in action here and there, but nowhere near it. I mean, I remember when I was studying economics at high school and, I, and we were looking at the industrial democracy model and I thought, yeah, that, that was a model that really appealed to me. But um, you just don't see very much of it, unfortunately. Well, it's kind of obscure. It's, it's kind of like this obscure topic that I've, uh, that I've dug up. I mean, we have very few examples of it. I think mm. partly it's because most people just don't know that much about it. No, well, they feel powerless. Um, you know, they've been, you know, the, the worker and even sub-management um, have perhaps, I mean, people are on some sort of a gerbil wheel and, um, and um, you know, and that gerbil wheel is pretty tight. And then you add to that all of the media saturation that we've got and people are more interested in, you know, following either celebrities or, or elite sports or all of that sort of thing than occupying their minds with, with anything else. I mean, that's, that's where their escape is as opposed to, um, like, as opposed to actually 
um, saying, all right, well, this is where I am, this is where I want to be, and I'm going to get together with others and I'm going to make this happen. You know, a lot of people, when you hear about the epiphanies and changes that they have, it takes a cancer or it takes something, a health scare or something to precipitate some sort of change in them. Um, it's not something that just naturally emerges if you're following the NFL and, um, and watching the latest Kardashian revolution. Well, <laughs> okay, fa- fair enough. I mean, but, but we're still dealing with, you know, a, a small minority community of people who you know, are converted to permaculture and and, sure, sure. and want to see it succeed. And yet, you know, I interviewed Luis Sierra of the uh, Center for Cooperative Development in California, and mm-hmm. he had never heard of permaculture. So w- mm. what that tells me is there's just not a lot of cross-fertilization of ideas between these two communities. Oh, well, between multiple communities. I wouldn't say it's just permaculture. I mean, I... I look at it that there's a biodynamic community, there's a regenerative agricultural community, there's a pasture cropping community, there's a agroecological community and so on and goes, you know. Um, there are a huge number of communities and talking to Alan Savory about that at Pol- when we had him at Polyface a few weeks ago, a month ago or so, um, you know, and he, we were all, Joel and he and I were talking about that, that uh, none of these communities actually talk to each other. Um, you know, they're sort of like strangers of the night and they're only, they're only delivering 2% of the product to the market and, um, and they'll, they might gradually get to 3% uh, one day or 4%. Um, but imagine if they actually all talk to each other what they could do. So if they're not even at the same table, um, then what hope have we of really proceeding um, with a sort of a solid... With, with, a, with a solid message and narrative to a consuming public or to policymakers out there who, uh, who at the moment really don't have anything to take seriously. I mean, we've been, something that we've been um, talking about quite a lot and part of that is um, from my conversations with people like Abe Collins, who I've been in, um, in business with for some years, is, um, is the need for monitoring I mean, prove permaculture, prove it. I mean, the, pro- prove the veracity of the claims that are being made. Prove the, the veracity of a lot of claims that a lot of people are making out there. We, you know, we need to have some evidence, folks. And so we need to have some thorough monitoring of what's going on, both at a production level and um, but also at a ecosystem services level. I mean, we need to get some real solid data because we're only going to go so far in our narrative and in our argument unless we have some cold, hard facts. So, and part of that is being well uh, capitalized enough to be able to do the monitoring, which is yeah, not absolutely. cheap. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and. Um, one of the things that I'm excited about is that monitoring technologies are reducing all of the time. But what I'm also excited about is that there are some medium to high net worth people who are coming into this space, into the regenerative agriculture slash permaculture la la space, who in having this conversation are really excited to actually show, show the money um, and build the monitoring systems such that we can actually have a strong proof of concept because until, you know, we're not, 
we're not going to get it by the reductionist scientists out there because it's just outside of their scope and outside of their funding protocols to do holistic research. But it's not outside of the, the, the scope of citizen scientists to do that. And now we have the relatively inexpensive monitoring systems to do just that. So I'm pretty excited about that because that will just because it just gives it it, it really annoys me that I, I I can only go so far with with what we're what we're doing because I can't I, I can only back up what I say so far with with uh, hardcore holistic evidence and that's and it's a society that wants that and in an adversary in an adversarial um, uh, discussion, which is what a political discussion is, you can only go so far with that unless you have the hit cold hard facts. You're going to be caught out every time. So we really need to have that. No argument on my part. And just a couple comments. Uh, the monitoring tools are almost there. Uh, not quite, but but getting closer every day. And, and the second point is um, the argument for cold, hard facts, I think, also applies to the economic side of things. I mean, we need good economic models for yeah, this absolutely. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's why I'm saying it's got to be holistic. It's got to be social. It's got to be economic. And it's got to be ecological facts. So, absolutely. And that's getting closer. I mean, I know that, uh, look, you could probably go and some, and some regenerative agricultural producers in particular because, you know, their focus is on producing agricultural outputs a permaculturalist typically is is more centered around sustaining their own production and sustaining their own uh, cycles if you if you're truly talking permaculture whereas the regenerative agriculturalist is engaged in um, in supplying a product to a buying market as as the first choice now those people have a better capacity to provide the economic evidence of why um, their production system is uh, superior. They may well also be able to supply um, the social evidence and social changes as to why um, moving uh, from one production system to another has been uh, has been positive. But on tom- in terms of the uh, ecological or ecosystem services outcomes, that's le- that's that's on shaky ground because that's actually a lot more expensive. The other two are relative, you know. We can do relatively inexpensive social research. You know, that's not difficult. We can do relatively inexpensive economic research because people do bookkeeping. It's not difficult. Um, but when it comes to ecosystem services monitoring, that requires a lot of layers of investigation. And like, like you've said and I've said, that's, uh, that's fortunately coming to a space where the citizen scientist citizen farmer scientist can actually enter the space and that we can get uh, scientifically verifiable outcomes. Well, but even, as you said, the economic and the social models are fairly inexpensive to get some of the data, and yet we yeah. still don't have uh, what we would well, like. I think that's because people aren't going in that direction. I mean, you need to have, um, you know, you know, people like uh, Raftus S. Ferguson, for example, who, you know, as part of his PhD has been going around trying to 
is been trying to do this at least at a social and um, and uh, and financial level, trying to 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 prove permaculture or to pr- prove regenerative agriculture. He he's doing it on that level, but he's you know he's a lone soldier out there um, having a crack at it because of because of his particular interest. Um, it does take somebody to collate all of the data and they've either got to do that via a grant or they've got to do it because uh, they've uh, got cap- free capital um, to do so. And they're rare people. Well, uh, predictions usually are not accurate, but they are fun. Um, do you care to make any predictions for what people can expect or prepare for or uh, prepare themselves for in terms of their skill sets over the next five years? Um, I'm not really big on predictions because it's just, and I think you know that too, Frank, <laughs> by the way you preface the question. Um, but it's, it's really hard to be in the futurist business because um, there's just so many variables at play here. But what I will say is that it's really important that um, – that, well, it's it's really clear to me and to a number of others that we've talked with on this tour and others that we are going to need new farmers. We do need agrarians, you know, regenerative agrarians, and we need a and we're going to need them fast because we're going to well, we not just need a different way of producing food, fibre, and energy um, to an increasing population of consumers, but um, we also need to replace the um, aging stock of existing producers. That's a that's a reality in our structurally aging Western um, agricultural economies. So uh, we really need to get that sorted. So so we do need an emerging era of um, new blood to come in and replace the old blood, uh, but maybe under different economic um, and tenure based circumstances because. A lot of those people are on landscapes which are going to be too expensive to feed for new people to come in and buy or borrow money to buy and then get it and then pay their mortgages back. That's going to be tough. There is a big trend um, and a, a lot of innovation going on around very micro scale, extreme, uh, extremely productive types of models, things like aquaponics, mm-hmm. producing insects, but more in urban environments. Um, and a lot of exciting things happening in this space, I think, because it's within the reach of uh, probably a greater percentage of people who have the capabilities. Uh, any thoughts on your part on, on that? Yeah, I keep, um, I suppose, uh, I, I'm in the space that's in permaculture parlance more zone three four, so I. But I, on this trip, I've kept hearing and seeing um, p- bits and pieces of smaller scale systems such as those you, you're speaking of, which are doing what um, some of what permaculture initially intended to do, and that was to bring food production um, into the suburbs and into the into the urban zones where most of the consumers were or are, and. Uh, and uh, you know, here we just we were just in Portland yesterday, and that's like a epicenter for that sort of activity. So um, there is a lot of that sort of thing going on, and um, and I think that's all amazing and fantastic, and the way to go. And then one final question: um, Permaculture is, 
as you just described, primarily associated with producing food, but we have lots of other opportunities to do lots of different things with the concepts and principles of permaculture. Mm -hmm. Solar energy is one of the first things that comes to mind. Um, Have you seen any permaculturalists reaching out beyond some of the more traditional boundaries of permaculture? Um, Here and there. Um, a lot of it's, I mean, again, people are still, uh, uh, depends on the model. I mean, some people are in the, um, you know, what their income-based model is. Some people are in sort of demonstration model or demonstration education model as an expression of their permaculture enterprise. Um, Energy, not very much. I see outside of that and what we've been pushing is looking, looking at more blacksmith technologies, if you like, such as wood gasification and uh, coppice-based agroforestry and those sorts of things as being um, energy-producing systems or generation systems that are worth worthy of note um, because they're relatively solid state and uh, stuff that people can actually do as opposed to photovoltaics so much, which are, you, know, you need to be a, a highly skilled individual using rare earths and... and uh, you know, really full-on manufacturing technologies to make a photovoltaic panel. So um, I think that the the main innovation that I've seen of that people who are identifying themselves as permaculturalists, and I think that's a really important piece here because not a, you know, a lot of people um, within permaculture appropriate what other people are doing who uh, the things that are the successes of other people who don't identify themselves as permaculturalists. And um, so a lot of the innovation that I've seen on this trip has been uh, people who are not identifying themselves as permaculturalists, but um, what they're doing is a, is, is permaculture ostensibly. That's interesting. Labels, (laughs) brands, Indeed. Well, Darren Doherty, any concluding remarks? Well, I'm pretty positive. Uh, I mean, I look at the age um, distribution of the. Um, we've I think we've probably had about fifteen hundred, two thousand people come to our events this year, and we've still got another month and a bit to go. And I look at the age distribution. We've definitely had a lot of younger people than we've had before, but we've also got. Um, some cool hardheads who've come along as well. So I look at it from that perspective. I'm pretty happy with the demographic and uh, and also the psychographic of those who are coming along. So I feel pretty positive about things. And I've left every workshop with people feeling like, you know, we can do this. Um, uh, we can move from being um, homo degenerous to, to homo regenerous and... Uh, and uh, and get this ship sorted out. On that note, Darren Doherty, thank you for the work that you continue to do around the globe to promote permaculture and encourage its spread. And thank you for, again, being generous with your time and joining me today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Yeah, always a pleasure. And I look forward to the next time, uh, hopefully not four years. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Thanks for all you're doing too, mate. That concludes my interview with Darren Doherty. I will include a link to Darren's website on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And I will try to include some links to some 
other things that Darren mentioned in the course of the interview as well. So if you're interested in that, uh, just go ahead and check out agroinnovations.com slash podcast. And if uh, you're listening to this much later than the date that the interview was published, look for episode number 152. Thanks for the great emails that I received from listeners. Um, just recently received an email from someone in Denmark. I don't have the email in front of me, but uh, basically this person thanked me for putting out the information that I put out and saying that he is going to create a black soldier fly business in Denmark. So more power to you, and I'm so happy that the information that you received here on this podcast is proving useful to you in creating a business, and hopefully that business creates a livelihood for you and for your family. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Darren Doherty. I hope it was as much fun to listen to as it was to participate in and record this interview. I'm going to have uh, more great content for you coming up in the very near future. I don't know what it is, but I have some guesses. Um, But you will just have to wait and see because I don't have anything at the moment recorded. And until that time, this is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos. Saludos.